0: Today's episode is sponsored by Femex, Radex, and RSK. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Hey everyone, this is your friend, Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law and media, and everything in between thanks for joining let's dive in this podcast is powered by blockworks the fastest growing crypto media company blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts and i'm excited to be part of the network visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space i promise you won't be disappointed hey everyone it's bully thanks for joining um today's guest is david hoffman i'm really excited he uh He's a co-founder of Bankless, and he's here to talk about Ethereum 2.0. As with all my podcasts, this isn't any sort of legal or investment advice. It's just being a conversation being provided for informational purposes. So without further ado, David, thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, Bully, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, I think Ethereum 2.0 has kind of been the topic of conversation on crypto Twitter recently and I was trying to do a little research on it and I solicited my audience for people who might be good resources and your name came up Um, and you were kind enough to volunteer to to sit Mm -hmm. in the chair and um, answer some of my questions and give my listeners just a background on you know the network upgrade and what it means for holders of ethereum and projects and just crypto generally because it's obviously you know the second largest cryptocurrency and people are very interested in this upgrade so maybe before we get into like what actually ethereum 2.0 is maybe you could give us a little bit of detail about your background how you got into crypto what bankless is and what you're working on
1: yeah, sure. Uh, I actually like to to tell the story framed in the context of you know what Ethereum is because I, I like to say that Ethereum found me rather than me uh, finding it, and uh, this is especially relevant as we transition into Ethereum 2.0 and the consensus mechanism for Ethereum changes because the code of a protocol has to do with the world around it. And so the way that I got into crypto was I was a, a broke student trying to get his way into graduate school. And in the middle of the hype of summer 2017, you know, the price of ether was going you know through the roof on, on a relative, relative term in like July or June. And uh, I had a gaming computer, which means that I had a GPU, which means that I was yeah. able to mine Ethereum. Uh, and I found out that I could make like 4 to $5 a day just mining this thing called Ether. Uh, and I realized that, you know, $4 to $5 a day is um, the amount of money that people try and like cut out, for example, when they stop going to Starbucks and they brew coffee at home. So, you know, it amounts to like $1,600 a year. Uh, and so as I saw that as an opportunity to help, you know, um, bolster my income as I would go through graduate school and that the, the reason why I had the ability to do that was because in the ethos of Ethereum is decentralized consensus, like consensus through uh, staking or validating at home. Uh, and so I was really attracted to that. And uh, I just scaled up that mining operation. I went from one GPU to like 24 GPUs spread in different corners of my father's house. And then that got me into uh, ETH Denver, the the hackathon conference in February of 2018. And I I went on this trip to to go to the conference because I was interested in Ethereum, but then also I was going to um, do something uh, more direct with getting into graduate school, which was go tour uh, University of Boulder. But after having the conversations uh, uh, that I had at East Denver, meeting the people that I met at East Denver, I just fell in love immediately with that space. And so I never actually went to uh, Boulder to go tour. I just stayed at East Denver. And I kind of just had this moment uh, at East Denver where I realized that there's no chance that I was going to be able to be satisfied not being a part of this community. Uh, and so that's kind of when I decided to double down in the Ethereum community. I didn't really know what to do. I wasn't a developer. I wasn't a coder. So I just started writing, uh, and I was looking on Etherscan at behaviors and, and paying attention to MakerDAO, which really fascinated me at the time. And I just started writing about it and people liked what I wrote and the story kind of just continued from there.
0: Nice, man. That's great. So, uh, you, you're a co-founder of Bankless,
1: is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and me and Ryan. Mm-hmm.
0: So, can you explain? You know, I've seen Ryan around. I've seen you around. I've seen Bankless. I don't really. I'm not super familiar. You guys have a Substack and sort of a YouTube channel. Is it kind of just an educational effort on Ethereum for the community?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't even focus it just on Ethereum. We it's it's about being. Bankless, right? So we are bankless maximalists and we are using tools to live a life without banks, right? And one of those tools is Bitcoin and one of those tools is Ethereum. Um, the thesis that we kind of have is that there are, as the world of crypto develops, there will be more and more tools to live a self-sovereign life, a, a, a lifestyle that does not require intermediaries where you hold your own assets, you custody your own assets. Uh, and then you also use DeFi protocols to access financial infrastructure that is available to you in the legacy system, but now is also available to you in the DeFi system. And it's now without intermediaries, right? And so it's, a, it's a self-sovereign, self-empowering way of living your life, and we like to use any sort of cryptocurrency tool in order to uh, achieve those ends. And the the tools that we've identified are largely Bitcoin and Ethereum and DeFi.
0: Sure. Yeah, I can imagine. It seems like a lot of the DeFi products are now squarely aimed at you know doing what banks do to, mm-hmm. in in some way or another, whether it's lending or you know collateralized exchanges and all of these different products DeFi is churning out. There's a lot of really interesting stuff happening. So it makes sense that you guys are focused on Ethereum. And of course, I mean, Bitcoin is sort of the 500 pound gorilla in the room mm-hmm. and y- y- you got to respect it and pay attention yep. to it. Um I was, you know, I was talking about this the other day with one of my guests. It's I I find it kind of interesting. I've been part of the community since 2016 or 2017, sort of when you were joining. And it's interesting to see sort of almost the almost Bitcoin go off and do one thing and Ethereum go off and do another. Like I constantly see these pot shots at Bitcoin from a lot of people in the Bitcoin community and vice versa. And I'm like, guys they're different products. They're really doing completely different things now. Like Bitcoin's a store of value, it's sort of digital gold. I think everyone kind of understands that thesis. And, and Ethereum's this really interesting platform that people can use to build these financial products. So I, don't, I still can't get my head around what the big fight is when like they're pretty different products at their core. Do you have any sort of thoughts on the constant bickering between the two communities?
1: Yeah, totally. So actually the first podcast that I ever started was with a CK, which we do a POV crypto where he's the Bitcoiner and I'm the Ethereum and we kind of debate <laughs> and, and we've, we've awesome. done like 170 episodes on that. So I've actually g- gotten like a pretty a decent amount of uh, nuance in my opinion about like what this debate really is. And, you know, depending on what you ask me to do, I can take the opinion that these things are largely different. They're serving different needs. They're different products, but I can also take the stance that, you know, there's only really going to be one winner. And while they they are very different, the end goals are the same. And the end goal is market cap, right? The end goal is number go up. Uh, And so depending on what perspective you can take, uh, you could take either one. Um, I'm definitely of the opinion that the combination of Bitcoin and Ethereum is beneficial for both chains. I think the Bitcoin market cap overall will be higher based off of what it will be enabled to do on Ethereum. And Ethereum, likewise, will be able to do more with more assets. And Bitcoin is the world's most valuable crypto asset. And so both are enabled by the other. But at the same time, both are trying to be money. Uh, And different people will will say different things about what Ether is. And uh, that is a whole conversation in of itself. But Ether is absolutely competing for store of value money. And so it's definitely competing with Bitcoin in that regard. So I think both takes are correct.
0: Yeah. Like any good advocate, you can argue both sides. Maybe you should go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's great. And I'm I'm going to have to check out that podcast. Cause I do, I think that the debate between the two communities is fascinating. I mean, I'm sort of of the, I guess I'm agnostic in a way that I just, I got into it hoping that I could make money. So I don't really care if, you know, Mm -hmm. if it's that or uh, some altcoin that does it, I just like to follow coins that make me money. But now as I sort of dig in, I understand that there are different kind of communities and tribes sort of being built around both coins. And it's, it's Mm -hmm. fascinating to watch and unpack. Um, But like you said, we could spend probably a, a whole episode on that. So maybe, um, you know, I'm sure most people know kind of the history of Ethereum broadly, mm-hmm. but I do think it's it's helpful, at least for some folks who may not have like a really deep knowledge of what Ethereum is. Like, how did it get started? Why did they, you know, launch? What's sort of the the broad thesis behind Ethereum? It may be painful to some of our listeners who have a more sophisticated understanding, but I do think it's useful to just kind of spend a few minutes talking about like, well, what is Ethereum 1.0 and why are we at where we're at?
1: Yeah, sure, so Ethereum 1.0 The Or even the existence of things that came after Bitcoin, which, you know, Vitalik, who started Ethereum, right? The founder of Ethereum was first and foremost, and still is a Bitcoiner, right? So he was interested in building on Bitcoin. A lot of his pre-Ethereum projects were working on ways to make Bitcoin, uh, what he calls more expressive, right? Uh, Being able to do more things. And this was a little bit at odds with the way that Bitcoin was constructed and still is constructed where um, Bitcoin and the Bitcoin development seems to be about the removal of utility of Bitcoin at the base layer, other than just a few very basic components like uh, a multi-sig and, and simple sends. Um, and Vitalik was trying to kind of do the opposite where he was trying to make Bitcoin more useful in a way that is actually validated by the blockchain. Uh, and so the, the generalized Bitcoin, Bitcoin your ethos is to make Bitcoin useful based off of uh, how centralized institutions can make it useful for you, right? So think of BlockFi, Coinbase, it will become expressive on uh on different layers outside of the base blockchain but Mm -hmm. vitalik was interested in making uh expressiveness happen in the blockchain uh and if you are bullish on ethereum you likely think that you are a person that thinks that expressivity inside the blockchain is interesting and advantageous in a way to promote more uh self-sovereignty right so like i said that with the bankless thesis it, we run on self-sovereignty and we access that through cryptographic insur- assurances. And so Vitalik made Ethereum because he couldn't get what he wanted to get done with Bitcoin uh, directly. This was just too at odds with what Bitcoin wanted to do. And so he, what he simply did was he took Bitcoin and then he t- added a, a virtual machine, which is basically just a computer, a computer. A, a, he, the, the computer, the computational layer of the blockchain was included with a virtual machine which allowed it for more expressive things to happen natively and all the other differences between Ethereum and Bitcoin like gas and gas pricing and, uh, you know, um, uh, the way, the way that computation is calculated in Ethereum, all of these came out as a means to serve that need of in baking in expressivity into the base layer of Ethereum. And, and so, oh,
0: sorry, Sorry to interrupt you, David. But is is another word for that smart contracting? Is that basically what what you mean yes. by expressiveness?
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. So we call we call uh, Ethereum a Turing complete platform. Um, but ever I was talking to Vitalik one point in time, and I and I was talking about the differences between Turing completeness and non Turing completeness, and he said the better way to describe this is expressivity. And so I've stuck with express express expressivity ever since but you're absolutely right we're talking about the difference between smart contracts and a a a script-based blockchain like bitcoin yeah Mm -hmm. gotcha okay and so you know over the years
0: i guess the the more ethereum has grown particularly recently with the advent of Uniswap and other Ethereum-based exchanges and platforms, we're seeing some scaling issues. I mean, there's mm-hmm. also some some hard fork issues, you know, Ethereum Classic and um, other issues that led to splits in the chain. But uh, maybe those are two separate questions. But what are we seeing from a scaling point of view on Ethereum? And is that really what's precipitating the Ethereum 2.0 discussion or is it something else altogether?
1: So... I'll, I'll back up before I answer that question and say when Ethereum got up and running, it did it in a way where it was also commi- committing to future upgrades, right? So even before the first block of Ethereum was mined, it was uh in a state that was not yet complete right and this was just as a matter of just getting ethereum out the door like even at the time a proof of work based smart con- smart contract platform was very very ambitious and, and and now ethereum has been running for 5 years and we know it's possible so we don't really think of it as ambitious anymore but think of the, the monumental task of doing a, a virtual machine-enabled, smart contract-enabled blockchain plus proof-of-stake plus sharding, which is a scaling mechanism for Ethereum, all at once was just way too much. So they got Ethereum 1.0 out the door with some compromises, leveraging the, what we what, at the time in 2015, what was known to work. And that was proof-of-work, right? Proof-of-work and a single blockchain. And the idea was that we would bake in proof-of-stake and sharding later at a later time. And so that's always been this difference between Ethereum 1.0 and the future version Ethereum 2.0 is that the 1.0 is what we know today. And it got out the door as a proof of concept. And now the, the goal is to finalize some of these very early commitments that Ethereum has made back in 2015 or in 2014. And we're finally getting to the point where we feel comfortable that we know how to do this, uh, you know, five plus years later. And so with regards to, to scaling, uh, as we've seen with the gas prices, the gas prices in 2020 on Ethereum have been absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes like just well, straight up just pricing people out of Ethereum, which is bad. We want Ethereum to be usable by as many possible people uh, in the world. Uh, and so scaling Ethereum and allowing transactions to happen on Ethereum in a way that prices in as many people as possible is, in my, in my opinion, a noble goal. Uh, and so there's two different conversations to be had with that. That is scaling the base Ethereum protocol, Ethereum itself. Or figuring out ways to uh, leverage layer two solutions. So, like, whereas Bitcoin has the Lightning Network, Ethereum has its own versions of uh, layer two. Uh, and I would say the main difference between a Bitcoin scaling solution like like uh, Lightning Network and Ethereum scaling solution is that Ethereum, because it's expressive, because it has options, because it is a smart contract enabled platform, it has optionality with how it scales in the L two. Uh, and so Ethereum seems to have just Um, more options to choose from with how it wants to scale itself. And so there are optimistic rollups. There are ZK rollups. There is, there's just a number of different ways to scale Ethereum and that doesn't even include sharding at the base layer. Uh, And so the, the bulk case for Ethereum scaling is a combination of, Interesting and viable L2 mechanisms that are suited to your particular use case of choice, in combination with sharding. And sharding is basically uh, splitting a blockchain into many mini blockchains and allowing each of those to run independently. And then a a core layer, a core consensus layer, brings all of those shards into consensus itself. And so Ethereum, whereas Ethereum 1.0 is one linear blockchain, uh, a sharded Ethereum 2.0 will have a 64. Blockchains, and then there is a heartbeat of Ethereum that ties everything together, and so that's that's kind of the the goal of of uh, Ethereum uh, scaling. Gotcha. So uh,
0: Ethereum two, when we when you hear Ethereum two that refers to adding sharding to the base layer and upgrading sort of the base layer of Ethereum, right?
1: Yes, yes, and so actually the ethereum two point is kind of a misnomer, and this is something that Danny Ryan, who is kind of the lead in the the eth two coordination effort, has been trying to to hammer lately the mental model of Ethereum 2.0 puts a picture into people's head that isn't really accurate. Like there's the Ethereum 1.0 blockchain that's moving. And then we're going to move over to the Ethereum 2.0 blockchain and that's a separate blockchain. And that's not really the right way to think about it. And so there's a, there's a number of different metaphors that I've been thinking about how to explain this in a way that that makes sense to people. Uh, And so there's a, a blockchain is two things. There is the body of the blockchain, which is the stuff that you do. Like for Bitcoin, it would be the UTXO set. For Ethereum, it is what we call the state, the state of things, who owns what, uh, what contracts and dApps are existent. And then there's the brains of the blockchain, which is the consensus mechanism, right? So yeah, that's, that's the proof of work. Uh, that's the EVM. Uh, and that is, that is how the, the ecosystem achieves consensus. And these are two separate things. And so what Ethereum 2.0 is really doing is it's keeping the body, but it's changing out the brain. It's changing out how consensus is achieved, right? It's changing out the hardware. And so if you've ever, if you have a Mac and you have upgraded from system 10.1 to system 10.2, The operating system changes, but your files and your applications and your games and Discord and and Zoom, those applications are still there. They're just this new operating system in the background, right? And so, it's designed to be non-disruptive. And so, for people who are just doing the things on Ethereum, nothing will change. Uh, At some point in time, just there will be a faster blockchain that has more capabilities that do more things. And the way that this doesn't disrupt people is, is like I was saying with how there's this one blockchain where there's Ethereum 1.0 and then we're all going to migrate over to 2.0. It, it, the only migration is an opt-in thing for people that want to move over to a new blockchain that eventually Ethereum 1.0 will merge into, right? So, imagine a station, uh, a train station, and there's 63 trains in the station, and then Ethereum 1.0 is its 64th train, and the Ethereum 1.0 train loads into the station with the remaining 63 uh, other trains, And then once it loads into the station, the whole entire station along with all 64 other trains are all one unit that start to move forward together. And to make this concrete, the station is phase zero or the beacon chain, which provides the heartbeat to Ethereum, provides the consensus, and then the sixty-four trains are the sixty-four shards that allow for people to do things. And and so it's not it's not we're not abandoning Ethereum 1.0. Ethereum 1.0 is getting loaded into a bigger machine, and that's how you know people that have ether and uh, token-based assets on Ethereum can arrive at Ethereum 2.0 without ever having to do any sort of migration. Does that all make sense? Yeah, no,
0: I think the train station metaphor is a really good one and it's really easy to understand. So let's unpack it a little bit. Um, So you mentioned phase zero and you sent me an infographic and I will tweet the infographic with this episode when when I publish it or when it goes live so folks can see it. Um, but the the gist of it is the, is that there's phase zero, one, one point five, and two, mm-hmm. um, and so there's various things that happen in each of those phases. And I guess you know before we unpack all those, what I'm sticking with the train metaphor. Say I'm on, say I have Ethereum, I, I own one Ethereum. I'm on train one, which is the original Ethereum blockchain does, does that Ethereum eventually automatically move to a new train or am I thinking about that wrong? Will it just like, if I sent it, it might use a different train to, to be sent is, is that kind of the idea? Will it always be on train one?
1: Yeah. So as soon as the train loads into the station with the other 63 other trains, all of the ether that is on train one is completely fungible with all the other ether that's on the different trains. And so, the, and so, the, the, the train metaphor kind of puts into your head, like there's different trains and there are different shards on Ethereum, but all these trains are also one unit, right? So hopping from train to train to train is trivially easy. It's, it's, it's because everything is done. That is the base layer of Ethereum. So while they are separate blockchains from a UIX perspective, they are all the same thing because that's what's done at what we call the beacon chain. The beacon chain is the thing that is like traffic controlling between all the shards, right? And so that's how, that's how train one and train two and train three are, are totally similar in their ability to achieve consensus. And when each train can achieve consensus with each other, it's almost like kind of this existential question. Are there really 64 different chains or is there just you know, 64 times the capacity to do more things than what we originally had. So as as soon as phase 1.5 occurs, which is where the ETH1 blockchain loads into the rest of the ETH2 uh, system, then all of the Ether that was on the ETH2 system that got there by these people that are depositing Ether into the deposit contract and staking at phase zero ahead of the loading of Ethereum 1 into the Ethereum 2, all of those merge once again. And uh, Ether is all completely fungible. I've used a lot of exchanges
0: over the years, and they all seem to have their problems. From a lack of volume to bad buggy UI, or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. FEMEX is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. FEMEX sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books, and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus. Femex, P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash a slash bully. Again, Femex dot com slash a slash bully. Check it out. Today's episode is sponsored by Radix. In the current financial system, transactions are slow, inefficient, and expensive and even suppose a decentralized finance platforms, or DeFi for short. Like Ethereum, we're not designed to support the number and speed of transactions necessary to scale DeFi. Ethereum's solution for this is sharding, which results in scalability at the cost of composability. Radix is a new cutting edge layer one platform for DeFi applications. Radix is specifically designed for DeFi, providing speed, security, and scalability. Radix uses its own next generation consensus system called Cerberus, which has achieved over 1 million transactions per second in recent testing. Try doing that on Ethereum. Learn more at radixdlt.com. That's R A D I X D L T.com. The DeFi revolution is the next big opportunity in the crypto financial market. RSK, the Bitcoin based smart contract platform, is hosting exciting, secure, and rewarding apps that allow you to trade, lend, and borrow on the most robust smart contract platform, powered by more than 60% of Bitcoin's computational power. For the holders out there, why let your Bitcoin just sit there when it could be earning you money, put your Bitcoin to work, trade without selling, spend without selling, lend and borrow on the most trusted network in the world. Hop on to openfinance to be part of the future and start making money on your Bitcoin today. Again, rsk.co slash open finance. Gotcha. So, the ultimate goal is like if I do a Uniswap transaction, mm-hmm. it, hopefully there's 63 times more bandwidth. That means that there's probably lower fees associated with each transaction and they're probably faster. Is that right?
1: Yes, that is right. However, this, it, it is important to note that there isn't going to be, uh, you know, a reduction of gas fees by like uh, sixty-four times. Or and so the way that the way to think about this is that when Ethereum one gets loaded into Ethereum two, it will become a shard. Right? It will be one of the sixty-four shards. Now, Ethereum one is really, really populated. Right? It's like the Manhattan of of the world. Right? It's the most populated place in the world. Uh, and the remaining shards will be pretty, pretty sparse, like there won't have been that much activity on them. But once the Manhattan of blockchains gets loaded into these you know, not very populated blockchains, there's overflow capacity. Right. And it's, there's overflow capacity that is still retained at the base layer. And so the shard of Ethereum one will still be pretty, pretty uh, congested. Right. But the difference is, is there will be room for people to uh, offload onto other shards if they so choose. And there was an article from Hasib Qureshi on the on the bankless newsletter that kind of made this metaphor really, really strong for people where, you know, there's Manhattan and then there's suburbs and then there's farmlands. And, you know, there will still always be uh, it'll always be expensive to live in Manhattan and it'll always be cheap to live out in the suburbs and even cheaper to live out in the farmlands and different Uh, reasons or different use cases of Ethereum will exhibit themselves on these different shards. And so like we're we're kind of assuming that like the Manhattan shard, the shard that everyone wants to be on is going to be like the DeFi shard where there's a lot of economic activity, a lot of high value transactions that push out lower value transactions. But now with these shards, these lower value transactions have somewhere to go. Right? Rather than you know, going on to some uh, centralized ledger like Coinbase or PayPal, where you say, like I want to send one Bitcoin to somebody else on PayPal. PayPal doesn't actually make a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. They just record it in their ledger. With Ethereum and, and sharding, we now have more room to make more on-chain transactions, which uh, means that we don't have to push people out to centralized institutions like PayPal or Coinbase. And we can keep that economic activity at the base layer.
0: Very cool. So do you think, will it be possible then to build layer two solutions on various shards, like out in the farmland, so to speak, or Mm -hmm. is, am I thinking of that wrong?
1: No, you're thinking about, about that totally correctly. And that's kind of where rollups comes into existence. And so again, rollups is uh, leveraging Ethereum's ability to be expressive. And the way that a rollup works is that you initialize a state, right? You put something, you put a piece of data on the blockchain that commits to how you will process transactions. And because you've made that initial commitment, you can then take all transactional information and you can put it on your centralized ledger. But because you've made this initial commitment, you've been able to give your customers or whoever whoever transactions you're processing, you've given them maximum assurances that you are going to follow the rules that you loaded into the Ethereum blockchain. And so you're using Ethereum as this like court system, the Supreme Court, where you are given the ability to process the transactions as you see fit. But if you ever broke the rules, people who gave you their assets on the Ethereum blockchain by sending it to your rollup on the Ethereum blockchain, they, will, they have the maximum assurances that you will never be able to break the rules, right? So it's a, it's a very strong compromise with how a centralized entity can retain sovereignty over how they process transactions while still being able to provide their users with very strong assurances that they're never going to be able to steal their funds from them.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. So I guess just thinking about it in real time, the use case for that might be like if I own a corporation or something Mm -hmm. and I want to issue shares on the blockchain, but I don't want all of that data to be public. I could do a roll up and then the users who are granted shares would have the, I guess, ability to confirm those, but Mm -hmm. without losing their privacy or anonymity.
1: That's yes, exactly right. Very and cool. I, I would say there's another example too, where like, say some bank comes around, like say Wells Fargo comes around and they say, you know, we, we are going to open up our Ethereum rollup. Any centralized ledger like Wells Fargo or hell, the even federal reserve or any bank, they could retain their centralized ledger, but they can also just provide their customers a more valuable assurances that they will always have their assets and they will always be able to access their ass- assets no matter what. So it's really allowing centralized ledgers to gain cryptographic assurances to their customers. And what me and Ryan are really bullish on um, in the bankless world is that at some point, you know, some bank is going to do this and it's going to be able to straight up provide a better product for their customers because their customers are going to be able to access them through Ethereum, but also because their legacy customers are going to be able to gain stronger assurances about the state of their bank. And maybe this isn't really something that we think about in the first world, but for the third world, uh, where banking infrastructure is met with skepticism, uh, I think it's going to be really important. Sure.
0: Yeah, no a way to sort of independently verify That's interesting. Um, So uh, backing up a little bit, uh, the roll-up stuff's interesting. The train metaphor is helpful. Uh, I know there's a lot of efforts by third parties or um, groups to stake Ethereum in preparation for the launch of 2.0. I don't understand anything about that. (laughs) Like, can you just explain like really from sort of a basic point of view, why would people stake their Ethereum? What is that doing? What's going on there? And how does that contribute to the overall development of this new network?
1: So do you want me to answer the question as to why people are going to stake now or a stake later when Ethereum 2.0 is complete? Because those are actually different questions.
0: Well, I, I assume that the answer to both of those is there's some economic benefit to doing totally. so. Yeah, mm-hmm. But I don't understand why. Like, I, I don't understand. So maybe it's because we're moving from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, and then you'll be entitled to some sort of advantage. or I, mm-hmm. I just... If if it's two separate questions, I'd be interested in understanding both of them. That This is how badly I understand it. I, I can't <laughs> even ask the right question. So if you're like, here's the question to ask, let me answer yeah. that one. That's fine too.
1: Yeah. Okay. So... Well, we'll start with proof of stake, right? So proof of work, you have your miner and your miner produces Bitcoins or Ether as rewards, right? So you run the miner and then you get the rewards. In proof of stake, it takes that miner and it embeds it into the asset itself. And so Ether in proof of stake is its own little ASIC, right? It's the thing that provides security to Ethereum. And so your Ether becomes a capital asset. It becomes an asset that produces more of itself over time if you stake it, right? And so we're starting this whole proof of stake chain with what we call phase zero in the two phases of Ethereum 2.0. And so what people are doing, and this is something that people are able to do right now, it started, I think on the 4th of November, Uh, you can deposit your 32 ETH, and it comes in chunks of 32, multiples of 32. and you deposit 32 ETH into the deposit contract, and then you run both an Ethereum one node and an Ethereum two node. And you, when you deposit your 32 ETH into the deposit contract, the Ethereum two uh, phase zero blockchain, which is what we call the beacon chain, acknowledges that and credits you with 32 Ether on the Ethereum 2 blockchain, right? This is the blockchain that will eventually converge back with the Ethereum 1 blockchain. So people are, so the mental model of two separate blockchains is actually relevant here for people who are interested in staking their Ether on the new blockchain. So when they deposit their 32 Ether into the deposit contract, what they're doing is they're more or less like deleting their Ether on the phase, on the Ethereum 1.0 chain but they have assurances that the, uh, the Ethereum 2.0 beacon chain will acknowledge that and mint them 32 Ether on the other side. And that is where they are able to then spin up their Ethereum 2 node, stake their 32 Ether on Ethereum 2 on the beacon chain, and then they will start be receiving Ether dividends for validating the uh, beacon chain blockchain on the other side. And this then, so there's going to be this period of time where there are two separate blockchains, right? The, the beacon chain is like the station and Ethereum one is, uh, is, you know, train number one and people that are staking on the beacon chain will be getting Ether dividends uh, over the, the, the period of time before the Ethereum blockchain loads back into itself. Right, and so for maybe one, two, two and a half years or something, people will be validating the Ethereum phase zero beacon chain and they will be receiving Ether dividends as a result. And then at at, at one point in time, the the Ethereum one uh, blockchain will load into the phase, uh, the Beacon Chain, and then all of the ether that uh, you that that is separate on you know the Ethereum 1.0 and the Beacon Chain will become transferable and fungible once again, right? And so for a mo for a brief moment in time, the, the Ethereum the ether that people have sent from Ethereum one into the deposit contract to be redeemable on the Beacon Chain of of Ethereum 2.0 is separate. But then once the trains converge again, they're once again fungible, and that's When staking can happen in a much more uh, fluid way, a much more liquid way, uh, because on in Ethereum 2.0, you when you stake, you are locked in for one epoch, which is roughly 6.4 minutes, and so you commit to your ether to the Ethereum 2.0 blockchain every uh, for 6.4 minutes, like units of 6.4. But that's very different than putting your ether into the uh, deposit contract and then potentially locking it up for you know, one to two years or basically an unknown quantity of time. Um, once Ethereum uh, f- uh, 2.0 actually arrives, you are staking for commitments of 6.4 minutes. Um, and that's when I think a lot more people will become interested in staking because they won't have this super long, unknown lockup period. They can go in and out of staking. Um, and there's just a lot more optionality. And that's kind of when staking really just becomes stabilized uh, and all the economic activity of Ethereum one has moved on to Ethereum two. Uh, and that's really when Ethereum 2.0 is up and running. And that's kind of going to be the, the final version of staking where you are actually validating DeFi transactions. You are actually staking your Ether on you know, the validation of Uniswap trades, et cetera.
0: And so during this lockup period for the f- people who are staking now these 32 Ethereum, are they receiving rewards over the f- over these two years, this year and a half? Will they be entitled to rewards based on the, ether- the 32 Ethereum that are being locked up now?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the rewards get paid out every epoch, right? So every 6.4 minutes. And so, you know, it, and so you will actually be able to watch your ether balance tick upwards every 6.4 minutes. Um, and so it, it's not just a promise of future ether, it's baked into the the beacon chain that you will be receiving your ether rewards. Um, and so there's a, there's a algorithm that will pay out more ether if there's less stakers. And then if more stakers, if, if there's a lot, of security and what that means is there's a lot of people that have staked ether if there's a, a an abundant amount of security the rewards for staking ether diminish but if there's not enough security the rewards for staking ether increase and so it tries to find this equilibrium point of uh, how much ether people can receive and so it's some balance between like uh, 15 to like four percent in ether denominated returns depending on how many other people are staking
0: Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So you're sort of, it's its almost like the hash rate or uh, maybe in the DeFi world, like how the AP, APY drops as more people, mm-hmm. you know, lock up funds and stuff. So it's it kind of like, like the a, uh,
1: difficulty adjustment for yep. Bitcoin.
0: Yep. Oh, great. Well, that's, uh, that's helpful and that's very easy to understand. So I, I feel like I have a much better <laughs> grasp of what's going on now. Good. I'm glad. Um, so I know this chart has Phase zero, phase one, phase one point five, and phase two. I think I understand phase zero. I think I understand phase two. What what's going on exactly in phase one and phase one point five?
1: Yeah. So phase one is where sharding comes in, uh, and and it should be known that phase that um, transactions in the way that we know them on Ethereum don't get unlocked until uh, phase one Five, I believe. And then there's some nuances here. Um, and no, excuse me, phase two, phase two. So phase one introduces uh, data sharding. And so Ethereum can be used as a data availability layer. And that's a very generalized term, but that goes back to what we were talking about with rollups, where Uh, people can initialize a state on Ethereum and then do things based on those commitments. And so some sort of centralized entity can start to use Ethereum as a place to store data. Uh, And while that that seems kind of weird, that is in itself the most generalized thing of what a blockchain does. Uh, It just is a place of data. It stores data in a trustless way. And so that's when in phase one, we can start to use the Ethereum blockchain as a data layer, a sharded data layer. Then 1.5, that's where we turn Ethereum 1.0 into a shard in Ethereum 2.0. And that's where like the, the two blockchains converge back into one blockchain. And then in phase two, that's where we have shards that are, have data availability that also enable uh state updates state transactions right and so we can start to use ethereum 2.0 in the way that we use ethereum 1.0 but now all of this like uh, the brain upgrade is totally complete
0: gotcha that that makes a lot of sense uh thanks one thing i was going to say is uh, i i solicited questions prior <laughs> prior to this interview um, on Twitter. And I was like, hey, do folks have questions? And I actually got quite a few pretty good ones. Um, Hmm. So so if you don't mind, I might just run through a few with you here. Um, the, The first one is, what if the minimum threshold for staking isn't met?
1: Yes, okay, so if the, there is no actual time limit for us to reach that number. Right? And so in order to get Ethereum, the, the phase zero up and running and get this phase the beacon chain blockchain kicked off, we need uh, 524,000 Ether deposited into the staking contract. And just for reference, there's roughly 113 million uh, Ether in total. And so we need a little bit over half of 1 million Ether deposited. Uh, and no one that I talked to in the Ethereum ecosystem thinks that we're not going to reach that number but say, uh, say it just takes a while, there's actually no end date for that number, right? And so, if that number never actually gets met, I guess we just keep on doing Ethereum 1.0. Um, but we have infinite time to reach that number. Uh, and as time goes on, there's just further and further incentive to move towards proof of stake. Um, and especially as Ether holders, right? Because Ether holders are not miners. It's, it's miners that are receiving the rewards of Ethereum, of validating Ethereum. And Ethereum 2.0, it's Ether holders that receive the rewards of validating Ethereum. So there's plenty of incentive for people to put, um, you know, less than... Uh, like 0.4% of the total e-supply into the deposit contract. Uh, there's plenty of ROI available there.
0: Sure. Do you, know, do you know off the top of your head, like where it's at right now?
1: Uh, yes, it is at, I think, 15,000 Ether out of uh, the the 500,000 ish, but that actually could be stale data. so I'm going to go to launchpad.etherium.org. Oh, no, I'm so far off. It is 57,600 Ether. So, like a tenth uh,
0: of the way there, over 10%. Over yes. Over 10%.
1: Yeah. Nice. And, and we, the, the general idea is that you, people are going the, the phase zero blockchain, the Genesis of uh, Ethereum 2.0, which is what everyone is depositing their ether for. There's no advantage to being early. And so the general idea is that people are just going to wait to the last minute because, you know, you can use your ether in DeFi, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can and get a return on it. And so people aren't going to do this until the very last minute. Um, but me and me and Ryan on the, the Bankless podcast, we've talked about like the likelihood of not reaching that threshold. And I gave the opinion that there's an 85% chance and Ryan gave the opinion that there's a 95% chance that we, that we get there before uh, the uh, December 1st, um, it's not deadline not the right word, but even if we do hit the threshold before December 1st, December 1st is the date that is the first possible day that phase zero could get kicked off. If there is enough ether in the deposit contract. I see.
0: So um is it possible? Like, is it a hard cap or could it be oversubscribed or mm-hmm. I don't know what the right word for that is. It could be, it could be
1: all of the ether in existence.
0: Yes. Okay. Okay. And then, so, I suppose the rewards will be based on the percentage of Ether that's staked. Right. Or,
1: yeah. Yes. And the, and because there are higher rewards if there is less Ether, there's a very strong incentive. Especially if you are an ETH bull who stakers inevitably are, um, there is a very strong incentive to be early because the earlier you are, the less total Ether is staked and so, that higher ETH denominated returns there will be for you.
0: Gotcha yeah it's like mining eth back in twenty sixteen on your gaming computer versus yep. mining it now, right
1: that's exactly right
0: great okay um so that answers those questions. Another question was, will the current chain continue to run and I suppose the answer to that is yes, right?
1: Yes, yes, even with um yeah the current chain will will continue to run. It's phase one point five well like like i said like if the chain will never actually stop running, I think the the real question to ask is. When do the miners stop being able to validate the blockchain, and that's in phase 1.5, which we are hypothesizing is one one to three years away. Um, knowing Ethereum Ethereum's track record of being able to keep dates uh, one to three years sounds about the right window. Sure. So at that point, there will be no incentive for miners to continue to mine
0: it because it will result in no rewards, and at that point, it'll become pure proof of stake. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yes. There will be no ability for miners to mine the blockchain.
0: Okay. And then, so I guess that begs the question about network security and, you know, with a lot of miners comes network security is, Mm -hmm. is the idea that individuals will be setting up their own nodes.
1: Yes. Yes. And so this is kind of why I started my, like, what, what is my background with Ethereum history talking about mining and it's always been in the ethos and values of Ethereum to enable validation at home, right? Like consent achieving consensus of the blockchain in your own home. And this was what we saw in the early days of Bitcoin, uh, you know, with CPU mining, right? People could validate Bitcoin on their laptop, um, but then ASICs came around and totally killed that party. And this to me is a return home to the ability to validate and receive in the upside rewards of, the, of providing consensus to the. Ethereum blockchain. Now that we have moved from Ethereum from away from proof of work into proof of stake, the hardware requirements for validating Ethereum 2.0 are like a 2016 MacBook Pro, right? <laughs> and so something that everyone has. And so this is why I think a lot of people will really feel like ownership and inspiration from being able to take part in upholding this global financial network inside of their own home. I think that's going to be a really, the the, the ability to validate the financial transactions of an internet-based economy is, is really cool. And I'm yeah. really excited for people to be able to return to do that inside their own home.
0: Yeah. And get a piece of it too, right?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: So what would you need to do it? Is it just like a a wallet on your computer or is it an online wallet or does it depend on sort of what you're using to stake it?
1: Yeah, so you definitely need a cold storage wallet, right? Uh, it, you will, and you need 32 Ether, right? And so you will download a client. Uh, there's there's a number of different ETH2 clients. Um, the, if you are kind of new to this, I would definitely recommend the Prism- Prismatic client. That's kind of the, the noob friendly client. Uh, and you will uh, load up your, your wallet into the client and you will give the client the rights to sign transactions on your behalf. And... That is where you commit to never ever lying to the Ethereum blockchain that you are signing a transaction that isn't valid, and if you do, that is where you get punished, and that's where the security comes from. No one, no one will ever accidentally do this. It's not, it's not possible to accidentally sign a false transaction. The clients are designed to sign. Um, correct transactions. So only a malicious individual who's trying to attack the blockchain would ever, ever sign a false transaction. So you just load up your 32 Ether on your promise that you won't be a malicious individual, and then you enable the client to stake and sign transactions for you.
0: Gotcha. So there, I guess there'd be no sort of ability to attack it, this 51% attack, unless you owned Half the, uh, half the half Ethereum. Of, half existence. of the staked
1: Ether, right. Yes. And gotcha. y- you must be ready to burn all of that Ether in the name of attacking the network in order to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Which would be insane.
1: Which would be insane. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Very
0: cool. So, um, one other question was when will smart contracts be implemented? I think you said it was 1.5 or 2.0. Is that when they'd be implemented on the new? networks
1: yes and so let's pull up that graphic so um data availability happens in phase one which means uh, smart contracts can, can happen in an off-chain capacity. Uh, but it's in phase two that, um, that existing shards will gain the ability to execute transactions natively, right? And so in phase 2.0, we will have 64 mini blockchains that all have the ability to talk to each other that are all able to execute transactions within each shard and also through each shard as well. Gotcha.
0: Do you, so somebody asked an interesting question. I, your, your answer to this is probably... All of them or none of them, but they they asked, are there any projects or alts in particular that you think are set to gain the most from Ethereum 2.0?
1: Oh yeah, no, I have the perfect answer for this one, and that that, that is Rocket Pool. So uh, there is the uh, theorized uh, staking as a service providers that will issue a token um, based off of your deposits, right? And so say like Bison Trails or you know Coinbase might stake for their individuals. You go and you go to the centralized staking as a service provider. You deposit your ether, and then they give you say you deposit 32 ether, and they'll give you uh, 32 staked ether tokens back. And this is very much like how Compound works with their C tokens, where you can lend out your DAI, you can lend out your USDC, whatever, and they will give you a token in return that called the C token. So, C DAI, C USDC, that has the interest of the token being earned through the lending protocol baked into it itself. Uh, and it's theorized that staking as a service providers will do the same thing for staked ether, where you give them your ether, they'll give you a credit on your deposit that has the interest baked into the token. you can take that token and then you can put it into Maker DAO or Compound and leverage it for liquidity. That's all great. Sure. The only problem is, is that liquidity begets liquidity, and if a single staking as a service provider kind of becomes the shelling point of uh, staking in order to in order to access this, that's kind of bad because then that one single staking as a service provider has all of the ether. They're they're staking a lot, um, and so that is a very Big centralization risk, and so that's why I'm particularly bullish on Rocket Pool, which, like all things on Ethereum, if you have a centralized uh, product, you can create it in a decentralized fashion on Ethereum, and this is what Rocket Pool is. And so, Rocket Pool uh, does two things: it decentralizes staking as a service providers, and it allows anyone to add their node to the protocol. And it also decentralizes who can enable staking their ether into the system. So right now, 32 ether costs $15,000, give or take. You know, for for a decent amount of the world, that's actually a pretty substantial amount of money. And if we are about to go into another bull market cycle where all crypto assets like 10X in price, all of a sudden we're talking about $150,000 or even greater than that. And so being able to stake is actually going to become something kind of for the wealthy. But with Rocket Pool, you can stake less than 32 ether because it's a pool. Uh, and so, if you only have eight ether, or two ether, or or 16 ether, you can deposit your uh, less than 32 amount of ether into Rocket Pool. And then that ether will be uh, valid- used to uh, be validated by people that are running nodes that are also contributing their nodes to Rocket Pool, and so we are both decentralizing the validation of Ethereum 2.0 and how many people are able to participate in staking. Uh, and so I'm particularly bullish on on Rocket Pool, and they, they have their of course they have their own token, the RPL token, um, to uh, really really solve the problem of of centralization risks in staking. Nice. Yeah. You were ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome.
0: Okay, David. Well, Hey, I think we're out of time, but I really appreciate it. This has been super helpful. Um, Anything else you want to like, what remind, remind our listeners what your Twitter handle is, what Mm -hmm. bankless is and things like that.
1: Yeah, my Twitter handle is at trustless state. And the, the whole meaning behind that is that Ethereum, Bitcoin, DeFi, these are enabling uh, a place, a state of trustlessness where we don't actually have to trust our counterparties. And that's all about what bankless is about as well. It's, it's about creating a financial world that is using Ethereum and Bitcoin protocols as intermediaries instead of centralized institutions. One of the the theses that we have is that, you know, here here's my adversarial take on Bitcoin, if I want to put on my my versus cap rather than my collaboration cap, is that Bitcoin didn't fully Decentralize the world it just decentralized the money and ethereum is taking the mantle and taking it to to the rest of everything and that's kind of the the ecosystem that we want to see grown at bankless and so if you are interested in seeing that ecosystem grow you can subscribe to the bankless podcast and also subscribe to the bankless newsletter where we put out um, tactics on how to do things and how to do them safely thought pieces as to like how and what this world means into the future and a bunch of other content of that nature Awesome.
0: All right. Well, David, thanks for joining us. And uh, if if people have more questions, they can find you on Twitter or um, in your newsletter. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, of man. Course. Well, thanks, thanks
1: a lot. Really appreciate
0: you hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.